Welcome to the Essential Southern Podcast, where we explore the rich history, culture, and traditions of the American South. Welcome back to the Essential Southern Podcast. I am Brian McClanahan, the president of the Abbeville Institute and host of the podcast. Of course, this podcast is sponsored by the Abbeville Institute. Our mission is to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like this podcast, our website, our programs, our webinars, our conferences, our lectures, all the things we do, videos, audio files, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. It will help us do all of these things. Well, let's talk about Stonewall Jackson. And that's, of course, the title of this, Remembering Stonewall. This is actually from a section of a book on Stonewall Jackson by his widow, uh, Mary Anna Jackson. The book is entitled Memoirs of Stonewall Jackson. It was published in 1895. Now, the reason I want to discuss this today in this particular section of the book is because oftentimes the opponents of the quote-unquote lost cause seek to dehumanize the people involved. The statues are not real in terms of real people, but they were remembering real people. But that's not what those who want to tear those things down, the iconoclasts, want you to think. They want you to view these people as inhuman, as subhuman, as not real. Because by doing that, it makes it easy just to eliminate them from the collective mind. And of course, uh, if you start reading things like this, well, then you'll realize that these people were real people with real feelings. And in fact, if you can't get through this section of the book and reading it without having some kind of emotional response, you're really not human. It also shows you the extent of the dedication of Southerners to that cause for independence. That's something else that's often paraded about by the uh, righteous cause mythologists. The Southerners really weren't that committed to the war that uh, many Southerners were just doing it because they had to, rich man's war, poor man's fight, that they had to, of course, conscript people, and that you had a large number of deserters. And we know that deserters happened on both sides. We know there was conscription on both sides. But the complete dedication of the South to the cause was tremendous. Of course, you're also going to hear that women weren't really that dedicated. When we know from the primary source material that women, in fact, were probably more dedicated to it oftentimes than the men that the women actually sacrificed more than the men did on the home front on a regular basis. And so that's part of this story. Now, of course, the charge will be that this is some kind of lost cause propaganda, but Marianna Jackson is writing this from her remembrances. What actually happened in the waning days of 1863 when Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson was shot and then ultimately died after having his arm amputated. That's the section I want to focus on. And of course, it also brings us to his funeral. Because you're going to see in that the outpouring of affection for a man who was highly regarded across the South. And also the outpouring of affection from the common soldier, from the people of Virginia, who supposedly weren't really that dedicated to the cause. You see, uh, this is the fascinating thing about all of it. The entire opposition to this, the righteous cause mythologist myth is built on a house of cards. There's nothing to it. Whereas the other side, it talks about the dedication of the South to independence, the dedication of the, of the South to their, to their wounded and dead heroes, because that's what these monuments were about, the dead soldiers across the South. And then, of course, the healing of the war. The, the reason that she was 
publishing this book. And of course, Marianna Jackson had a daughter and uh, she never remarried. She became known as the widow of the Confederacy. Uh, but the dedication of these women to preserving the memory of the men, their, their husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, cousins, uncles, these men that had died in service of independence. And they did it all across the South. And that's what those monuments meant. Many of them were erected in cemeteries. We were told for years those monuments wouldn't come down in cemeteries. Now we've seen that actually happens. We were told for years that bodies wouldn't be exhumed and moved. We've seen now that that happens. So this is really important to understand. When you actually get out and you dig into the primary material, which, of course, the righteous cause mythologists will say they do, but you come up with a whole different picture from what they say is happening. They're going to cherry pick. And, of course, you can find things to support their arguments. The Southerners weren't as dedicated or uh, that they said some mean things in 21st century languages. is true, but you can find that on the other side, too. I mean, this is a complex event with people, and people are complex. And there isn't going to be an easy black and white situation to this where you just have an answer that's one or the other. But you will have, and you will get a sense. And historians have actually done the work, like Gary Gallagher, who is by no means a lost cause mythologist. In fact, he's written a book attacking it. But regardless, his Confederate war shows you the dedication of Southerners to this particular cause. Or even James McPherson, again, a man who is by no means a lost cause mythologist, but his book for Cause and Comrades shows you the dedication of Southerners to this. And of course, on the other side, you have wonderful books that are talking about the Union cause. Gary Gallagher wrote a book entitled The Union War that gets into their crusade, which was not for uh, the abolition of slavery. Some Unionists, uh, you know, supporters were interested in that, but most were not. They were interested in preserving the Union, whatever that meant. And of course, then you have William Marvel's wonderful book, Lincoln's Mercenaries, which shows you the economic motivation for many men who joined the Union Army because this was a way to make a paycheck. And you saw that across the North, whereas you really didn't have that in the South. So you have this, this real dichotomy developing. On one side, you have a push for independence from a predominantly volunteer army. On the other side, you have a push for independence from a predominantly paid army who wouldn't have fought if they didn't get the money. Even the commutation fees that were paid by many Northerners of $300 to keep their sons out of the war, that's still a paycheck for those men going off to fight. So this is a really important issue, and you do see the split. Now, this is why for years after the war was over, in Europe and elsewhere, people said when when uh, the world looks back at this war, they're going to respect the Confederate soldier for his dedication to the cause. And of course, that was true for a very long period of time until we allowed political ideology to get involved. And of course, uh, we see the outgrowth and the, the, the results of that in 2024. So I want to get into this piece. And now just to set this up, Jackson has already been wounded. He's lying essentially on his deathbed at this point. And his wife, Marianna, is called in to see him. Now, they have a very young infant daughter. and um, uh, So he has not really seen her much uh, since you know, during the war. I mean, he's been busy. Of course, he's one of the most important general officers in the Confederate Army. Now, for years, people would read this, North and South, and weep for the loss of Jackson's family and for the people that love Jackson. 
it humanized Stonewall Jackson. That was the point. He wasn't just some barbarian, some brute out there. And Union soldiers would shake hands with the Confederates. These are people that actually shot at each other, and yet they could reconcile. But today, we have to treat these people as subhuman, as demons, as they did before the war. You see, after the war was over, there was a, there was a period where that wasn't the case. And uh, that's what the reconciliation memorials were all about. So this is, this is a fascinating look at a period of time when Americans were trying to heal the 1890s. They're trying to heal the wounds of the war. And you saw an effort to do that, north and south. It didn't mean that all people were in favor of it. And of course, you did have people that were bitter on both sides. But for the majority of Americans, it was a time to bury the sword or at least hammer the sword into plowshares, which is what the original Reconciliation Memorial, the Confederate Memorial in Arlington Cemetery, was all about. In fact, that's what it was called, the New South Memorial. It was, And it had an inscription, Swords into Plowshares. That was the whole point. It was to bury the violence, the vitriol, the hatred of each section and have a, a nice memorial to the people of the South and to the South itself in a predominantly Union cemetery. Everyone knew what that was. So th this is the, the funny thing about all this. The sad thing, really. It's, it's produced the two minutes hate across the North. Anytime you see anything about the South, you have to have your two minutes, your obligatory two minutes of hate. And you have to hurl invectives and all kinds of things at Southerners. You go on social media, that's what happens. No one who is respecting these men uh, nowadays is supporting... Uh, anything like slavery or anything that would be attached to the antebellum United States. Remember that the North had slavery until after the war was over too, in fact, until 1866. But nobody's doing that. They're simply honoring their ancestors or honoring people that were considered American heroes, North and South, for decades after the war was over. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, these people were not considered to be traitors. This is a new thing in terms of the way that it's now been positioned as the dominant opinion. Not saying there weren't people in the 19th century that didn't think that. There were. Or people at the time who didn't use those terms. They did. Even after the war was over, they used it. But for most Americans, they didn't use those terms anymore. Those terms were dropped. They didn't think of it in that way. Uh, after about the first decade of the period after the war, there were certainly some people who still did. But uh, for the most part, Americans had decided that it was better to put the wounds of the war aside, traitor wasn't the right term, and they were going to move on. And they were going to reconcile and move forward in the United States as a unified country uh, for the good of the United States. We just don't do that anymore. We, we're fighting Reconstruction again. This is We're not fighting the war. This is what people often think. What's going on now is Reconstruction again. And in fact, that term is used. I saw a book uh, the other day in uh, in Barnes & Noble, it was the third reconstruction. This is how it's positioned now. Uh, so, let's get into this particular, uh, this particular piece. She says, My own heart almost stood still under the weight of horror and apprehension, which then oppressed me. This ghastly spectacle was a most unfitting preparation for my entrance into the presence of my stricken husband. But when I soon afterwards summoned to his chamber, the sight of which there met my eyes was far more appalling and sent such a thrill of agony and heart-sinking through me as I had never known before. Now imagine her situation. She has not seen him since he's been wounded. Of course, he had his arm amputated. She has not seen this. She is now being called in to see him. 
uh, after his amputation. She hadn't seen him, but after his amputation. And, and of course, after his wounding. She hadn't seen him since. And so she recalls what he was before. Oh, the fearful change since I had last seen him. It required the strongest effort of which I was capable to maintain my self-control. When he left me on the morning of the 29th, going forth so cheerfully and bravely to the call of duty. But of course, these people aren't very brave. They're just cowards, traitors, right? He was in the full flush of vigorous manhood. And during that last blessed visit, I never saw him look so handsome, so happy, and so noble. Now his fearful wounds, his mutilated arm, the scratches upon his face, and above all, the desperate pneumonia, which was flushing his cheeks, oppressed his breathing, and benumbed his senses, wrung my soul with such grief and anguish as it had never before experienced. He had to be aroused to speak to me and express much joy and thankfulness at seeing me. But he was too much affected by morphia to resist stupor and soon seemed to lose the consciousness of my presence, except when I spoke or ministered to him. From the time I reached him, he was too ill to notice or talk much, and he lay most of the time in a semi-conscious state. But when aroused, he recognized those about him, and consciousness would return. Soon after I entered the room, he was impressed by the woeful anxiety and sadness portrayed in my face, and said, this is Stonewall Jackson, quote, My darling, you must cheer up and not wear a long face. I love cheerfulness and brightness in a sick room. And he requested me to speak distinctly, as he wished to hear every word I said. Whenever he awakened from his stupor, he always had some endearing words to say to me, such as, My darling, you are very much loved. You are one of the most precious little wives in the world. He told me he knew I would be glad to take his place, but he knew God was what he knew God he knew but God knew what was best for us. Thinking it would cheer him more than anything else to see the baby in whom he had so delighted, I proposed several times to bring her to his bedside, but he always said, Not yet, wait till I feel better. He was invariably patient, never uttering a murmur or a complaint. Sometimes in slight delirium he talked, and his mind was then generally upon his military duties, caring for his soldiers and giving such directions as these. Tell Major Hawks to send forward provisions to the men. Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front. Our friends around us, seeing how critical was his condition and how my whole time was given up to him, determined to send to Richmond for Mrs. Hodge to come to my relief and assist in taking care of my baby. Hetty had been faithful to her little charge, but the presence of Mrs. Hodge, who was a singularly bright, affectionate, sympathetic nurse, nature, and her loving ministrations in times of sorest trial were of inestimable value and comfort. Friday and Saturday passed much in the same way. This is the last three days, last four days that he's alive, bringing no favorable change to the dear sufferer. Indeed, his fever and restlessness increased, and although everything was done for his relief and benefit, he was growing perceptibly weaker. On Saturday evening, in the hope of soothing him, I proposed reading some selections from, from the Psalms. At first he replied that he was suffering too much to listen, but very soon added, yes, we must never refuse that. Get the Bible and read them. As night approached, he grew more wearied. He requested me to sing to him and asked that the song should be the most spiritual that could be selected. My brother Joseph assisted me in singing a few hymns, and at my husband's request, we concluded with the 51st Psalm and burst, Show pity, Lord, O Lord, forgive. The sitting had a quieting effect, and he seemed to rest in perfect peace. Dr. S.B. Morrison, a relative of mine, and Dr. David Tucker of Richmond had both been called in consultation by Dr. McGuire. As Dr. Morrison was examining the patient, he looked up pleasantly at him and said, That's an old familiar face. 
On Saturday afternoon, he asked to see his chaplain, Mr. Lacey. <clears throat> but his reputation being now, I'm sorry, reputation being now very different, different, it was not thought prudent for him to converse. And an attempt was made to dissuade him. But he was so persistent that it deemed best to gratify him. When Mr. Lacey entered, he inquired of him if he was trying to further those views of Sabbath observance of which he had spoken to him. Upon being assured that this was being done, he expressed much gratification and talked for some time upon that subject, his last care and effort for the Church of Christ being to secure the sanctification of the Lord's Day. Now, let me pause there for a second. So look, this shows you who Jackson was. Patient, uh, devoted, devoted to his men, to his family. Uh, Christian, a Christian gentleman above all else. This is one thing that you would get out of reading Robertson's biography of, of Jackson or any biography of Jackson. You can't escape it. And yet these people are portrayed as devils, subhuman. I mean, but that's not what you get when you read this. This, more than anything else, again, if you don't have any kind of emotional response to this, you're not human. Of course, we know that the other side, well, he deserved it. He was a traitor. I mean, this is what you get, right? But really? Apprehending the nearness of his end, Mr. Lacey wished to remain with him on Sunday, but he insisted that he should go, as usual, to preach to the soldiers. When Major Pendleton came to his bedside about noon, he inquired of him, who was preaching at headquarters today. When told that Mr. Lacey was and that the whole army was praying for him, he said, Thank God, they are very kind. As soon as the chaplain appeared at headquarters that morning, General Lee anxiously inquired after General Jackson's condition. Upon hearing how hopeless it was, he exclaimed with deep feeling, Surely General Jackson must recover. God will not take him from us. Now that we need him so much, surely he will be, he will be spared to us in answer to the many prayers which are offered for him. And upon Mr. Lacey's leaving, he said, When you return, I trust you will find him better. When a suitable occasion offers, give him my love and tell him that I wrestled in prayer for him last night as I never prayed. I believe for myself. Here his voice became choked with emotion, and he turned away to hide his intense feeling. Again, Lee, the marble, cast iron Lee, choked with emotion over Jackson. These people loved each other in a way that we can't really comprehend today. And that's why this stuff is so important. It humanizes everything. Who these people were. Now, uh, this is why we call this the Essential Southern Podcast, because there is that element to the Southern character, the Southern tradition, the family, the Christian devotion, these things that are very important as an outgrowth of that tradition. And again, every tradition has its thorns, and every tradition is going to have the, the exceptions, you see. But this was across the South. The men are praying for Jackson. You would... You would guess from reading the modern literature these people were just horrible demons. It's not what you get when you read this. Shortly after the general's fall and before the situation had grown so critical, General Lee sent him by a friend the following message. Give him my affectionate regards and tell him to make haste and get well and come back to me as soon as he can. He has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right arm. Mr. Lacey was a truly spiritual comforter and help to me in those dark and agonizing days. Often when I was called out of the sick chamber to my little nursling before returning, we would meet together and bowing down before the throne of grace, pour out our hearts to God to spare that precious, useful life, if consistent with his will. For without this condition, which the Savior himself enjoins, we dared not plead for that life, intimately, infinitely dearer as it was 
than my own. In order to stimulate his fast-failing powers, he was offered some brandy and water, but he showed great repugnance to it, saying excitedly, it tastes like fire and cannot do me any good. Early on Sunday morning, the 10th of May, I was called out of the sick room by Dr. Morrison, who told me the doctors, having done everything that human skill to devise to stay the hand of death, had lost all hope, and that my precious, brave, noble husband could not live. Instead, life was fast ebbing away, and they felt that they must prepare me for the inevitable event, which was now a question of only a few short hours. As soon as I could arise from the stunning blow, I told Dr. Morrison that my husband must be informed of his condition. I well knew that death to him was but the opening of the gates of pearl and the ineffable glories of heaven. But I had heard him say that, although he was willing and ready to die at any moment that God might call him. Still, we prefer to have a few hours' preparation before entering into the presence of his Maker and Redeemer. I therefore felt it my duty to gratify his desire. He now appeared to be fast sinking into unconsciousness, but he heard my voice and understood me better than others, and God gave me the strength and composure to hold a last sacred interview with him, in which I tried to impress upon him his situation and learn his dying wishes. It was all the harder because he had never, from the time that he had first rallied from his wounds, thought he would die, and he expressed the belief that God still had work for him to do and he would raise his hand up for him to do it. When I told him the doctors thought he would soon be in heaven, he did not seem to comprehend it and showed no surprise or concern. But upon repeating it and asked him if he was willing for God to do with him according to his own will, he looked at me calmly and intelligently and said, Yes, I prefer it. I prefer it. I then told him that before the day was over, he would be with the blessed Savior in his glory. With perfect distinctness and intelligence, he said, I will be an infinite gainer to be translated. I then asked him if he was... It was his wish that I should return with our infant to my father's home in North Carolina. He answered, Yes, you have a kind, good father, but no one is so kind and good as your heavenly father. He said he had many things to say to me, but then he was then too weak. Preferring to know his own desire as to the place of his burial, I asked him the question. But his mind was now growing clouded again, and at first he replied, Charlotte, and afterwards Charlottesville. I then asked him if he did not wish to be buried in Lexington, and he answered at once, Yes, Lexington, and in my own plot. He had bought the pl- this plot himself when our first child had died as a burial place for his family. And of course, that's where he is today. There's still a monument to Jackson there. And his wife is buried there. His daughter's buried. He's buried there. His infant daughter, and he's buried there. Mrs. Hodge now came in bearing little Julia in her arms with Hetty following. And although he had almost ceased to notice anything, as soon as they entered the door, he looked up. His countenance brightened with delight. And he never smiled more sweetly as he exclaimed, Little darling, sweet one. She was seated on the bed by his side, and after watching her intently, with radiant smiles, for a few moments he closed his eyes as as if in prayer. Though she was suffering the pangs of extreme hunger from long absence from her mother, she seemed to forget her discomfort and the joy of seeing that loving face beam on her once more. And she looked at him and smiled as long as he continued to notice her. Tears were shed over that dying bed by strong men who were unused to weep, and it was touched to see the genuine grief of his servant Jim, who nursed him faithfully to the end. Now, of course, that's going to be viewed as lost cause mythology. Jim, of course, is his slave, and, and um, he did own slaves, uh, but um, his servant, and he tended to, to Jackson. And, of course, he, he grieved for him just like anyone else did. He now sank rapidly into unconsciousness, murmuring discontented words occasionally, but all at once he spoke out very cheerfully and distinctively the beautiful sentence which has become immortal as his last. 
Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. With his soul wandering back in dreams to the river of his beloved valley, the Shenandoah, the river of sparkling waters, whose verdant meads and groves he had redeemed from the invader, and across whose floods he had so often won his passage to the through the tolls of battle. Was this what he was doing? Or was he reaching forward across the river of death to the golden streets of the celestial city and the trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations? It was to these that God was bringing him through his last battle and victory under the shade he walks with the blessed company of the redeemed. General Jackson expressed a desire when in health that he might enter into the rest that remains for God's people on the Lord's day. His wish was now gratified, and his heavenly Father translated for him, him from the toils and trials of earth, soon after the noon of a, of a beautiful and perfect a May day, as ever shed its splendor upon this world, to those realms of everlasting rest and bliss where Sabbaths have no end, and the noontide of glory eternally reigns. Never shall I forget Mr. Lacey's ministrations of consolation to my bleeding heart on that holiest of Sabbath afternoons. Seated by my bedside, he talked, so of heaven, giving such glowing descriptions of its blessedness, and following in the, imagine the ransom glorified spirit through the gates into the city, that at last peace, the peace of God, came into my soul, and I felt it was selfish to wish to bring back to this sorrowful earth for my happiness one who had made such a blissful exchange. But this frame of mind did not last, and many were the subsequent conflicts to attain and keep this spirit. The remains were carefully prepared by the loving hands of the staff officers, the body being embalmed and clothed in an ordinary dress and then wrapped in a dark blue military overcoat. His Confederate uniform had been cut almost to pieces by his attendants in their endeavor to reach and bind up his wounds on the night of his fall. Late in the evening, I went to, into Mr. Chandler's parlor to see that all that was left of the one who had been to me the truest, tenderest, and dearest of all the relations on, of earth, the husband of whom I had been so proud and for whom I had thought no honors or distinctions too great. But above all, this I prized and revered his exalted Christian character, and knew that God had now given him a crown of righteousness. Yet how unspeakable and incalculable was his loss to me and that fatherless baby, dead, in the meridian of his grand life, before he had attained the age, age of 40 years, but alive in Christ forevermore. I mean, look at the grief she's feeling here. She's lost. And this is this is now being written 30 years later. This is what she's still saying about this time. She was still grieving 30 years later for this. When people say that Confederate women who were erecting monuments were just doing it for some political motivation, when you read this, do you even come away with that? These people were grieving 30 years later for all that was lost for all the bloodshed, for all the men that they had lost. How can you think this was all about politics? But that's the mind of the modern left. Everything is about politics. It's never about remembrance or respect or honor, ever. It's about politics. All traces of suffering disappeared from that noble face, and although somewhat emaciated, the expression was serene and elevated, and he looked far more natural than I had dared to hope. That night, after a few hours' sleep from sheer exhaustion, I awoke, when all in my chamber was perfect stillness, and the full moon poured a flood of light through the windows, glorious enough to lift my soul heavenwards. But oh, the agony and anguish of those silent midnight hours, when the terrible reality of my loss and the desolation of widowhood 
forced itself upon me and took possession of my whole being. My unconscious little one lay sweetly sleeping by my side, and my kind of friend, Mrs. Hodge, was near, but I strove not to awaken them. All alone I, ste- I seemed, I stemmed the torrent of grief, which seemed insupper- insupportable, until prayer to him who alone can comfort again brought peace and quietness to my heart. The next morning I went once more to see his remains, which were now in the casket, and were covered with spring flowers. His dear face was wreathed with the lovely lily of the valley, the emblem of humility, his own predominant grace, predominating grace, and it seemed to me no flowers could have been so appropriate for him. Since then I had never seen the lily of the valley without its recalling the tenderest and most sacred associations. On Monday morning began the sad journey to Richmond. A special car had been set apart for us, in which were Mr. Lacey and the staff officers, while Mrs. Hodge and Mrs. Chandler were my attendants, and proved themselves the kindest of friends and comforters. Upon reaching the suburbs of the city, the train stopped, and we were met by Mrs. Governor Letcher and other ladies with several carriages, and driven through the most retired streets of the governor's mansion. Kind friends had also in readiness for me a morning outfit. These were indeed most thoughtful considerations on their part, and could not have been more gratefully associated. The funeral cortege then proceeded on its way into the city and was followed by two miles of th- for two miles by throngs of people. It then proceeded into the city for two miles by throngs of people. Business had been suspended, and the whole city came forth to meet the dead chieftain. The whole city. Amidst the solemn silence only broken by the boom of the minute guns and the wails of military dirge, the coffin was borne to the governor's gates and hidden for a time from the guise of the multitude that were wet with tears. But these people weren't dedicated. These people didn't have them believe any of this stuff right. Two miles of people following the profession, the procession. Two miles. The casket, enveloped in a Confederate flag was, and laden with spring flowers, was placed in the center of the reception room in the executive mansion. I was, it was here that I looked upon the face of my husband for the last time. No change had taken place, but the coffin had been sealed, the beloved face could only be seen through the glass plate, which was disappointing and unsatisfactory. In honor of the dead, the next day a great civic and military procession took place. The full body was carried through the main streets of the city, the pallbearers being six majors and brigadier generals dressed in full uniform. The hearse, draped in mourning and drawn by four white horses, was followed by his horse, led by a groom. Empty, of course. Which is, I mean, you can just imagine the scene. Next, by his staff officers, regiments of infantry and artillery, then a vast array of officer, officials, the president, cabinet, and all the general officers in Richmond, after whom came a multitude of dignitaries and citizens, and then all returned to the capital. Every place of business was closed, and every avenue thronged with solemn and tearful spectators, while a silence more impressive than that of the Sabbath brooded over the whole town. When the hearse reached the steps of the capital, the pallbearers, headed by General Longstreet, the great comrade of the departed, bore the corpse into the lower house of the Congress, where it was placed on a kind of altar, draped with snowy white, before the Speaker's chair. The coffin was still unfolded with the white, blue, and red of the Confederate flag. The Congress of the Confederate States had a short time before adopted a design for their flag, and a large and elegant model had just been completed, the first ever made, which was intended to be unfurled from the roof of the Capitol, the flag the President sent as a gift to the country, to the wing sheet of General Jack to be the wing sheet of General Jackson. During the remainder of the day, the body lay in state and was visited by fully twenty thousand persons. The women bringing flowers until not only the the bar, the bar was covered, but 
The table on which it rested overflowed with piles of these numerous tributes of affection. 20,000 people. 20,000. And everyone brought flowers. But I thought these people didn't care. I mean, they weren't really that dedicated. The women were out starving and doing bread rides, what the left will tell you now. These people weren't really dedicated to it. At the hour appointed for closing the doors, the multitude was still streaming in, and an old wounded soldier was seen pressing forward to take his last look at the face of his loved commander. He was told that he was too late, the casket was then being closed for the last time, and the order had been given to clear the hall. He still endeavored to advance. One of the marshals threatened to arrest him if he did not obey orders. The old soldier hereupon lifted up the stump of his mutilated arm, with tears streaming from his eyes, exclaimed, By this arm which I lost for my country, I demand the privilege of seeing my general once more. The kind heart of Governor Letcher was so touched by this appeal that at his intercession the old soldier's petition was granted. The tears which dropped over his briar by strong men and gentle women were the most true and honorable tributes that could be paid to him. And even little children were held by their parents that they might reverently behold his face and stamp his name upon their memories. While all these public demonstrations were taking place in the capital, how different was the scene in my darkened chamber nearby. A few loving friends came to mingle their tears with mine, among whom was my motherly friend, Mrs. William N. Page, my, and my eldest brother, Major W. W. Morrison, arrived that day from North Carolina. Both of these dear ones accompanied me on the remainder of that sad pilgrimage to Lexington. I also received a precious visit from Reverend Dr. T.V. Moore, whom I had never met before, but his winning gentleness of face, his selections of the most comforting passages of Scripture, such as the 14th chapter of John beginning beginning, let not your heart be troubled, ye believe in God, believe also in me, and his fervent, touching prayer could not have been more grateful and soothing, a proving balm indeed to my wounded, crushed heart. I never saw him again, but he too has long since joined that army of the living God, part of whose host have crossed the flood and are part, of, and are, and part are crossing now. Little Julia was an object of great interest to her father's friends and admirers, and so numerous were the requests to see her that Hetty, finding the child growing worried at so much notice and handling, sought a refuge beyond the reach of the crowd. She ensconced herself with her little charge so close to the wall of the house, underneath my window in the backyard, and there I heard crooning and bewailing that people would not give that, that people would give her baby no rest. On Wednesday morning we again set out on our protracted funeral journey, going by the way of Gordonsville to Lynchburg. And along the route, at every station at which a stop was made, were assembled crowds of people, and many were the floor offerings not handled in for the briar, buyer. His child was often called for, and on several occasions was handed in and out of the car windows to be kissed. No stop was made at Lynchburg, but a vast throng was there to attest to their interests and affection and to present flowers. Here we took the canal boat, which was to convey us to Lexington, and on Thursday evening, with our precious burden, we reached a little village which had been so dear to him and where his body was now to repose until the last trump shall sound, and this mortal shall put on immortality. At Lexington, our pastor, Dr. White, and his friends, and neighbors, met us in tears and sorrow. The remains were taken charge by the Corps of Cadets of the Virginia Military Institute and carried to the lecture room, where General Jackson, while professor, had taught for ten years and were guarded during the night by his former pupils. On Friday the 15th, May 15th, the body was again escorted by the officers and cadets of the Institute, together with the citizens of the Presbyterian Church, in which he had so loved to worship, where the services were conducted in the simplest manner by the pastor and other visiting ministers. Now remember, he's at VMI now, and of course VMI has taken down the statue of Jackson. They removed it. The man that the cadets guarded 
in lying in state. They took it away because it's somehow evil. And when you read this, do you even get any of that? Is there an evil part of any of this? Evil is what these people say Jackson was. He was evil. I don't see that. Thousands and thousands of people thronging to see Jackson. Were all those people evil? Conspicuous among these were General Jackson's value friend, Dr. Ramsey of Lynchburg, who offered a prayer of wonderful pathos. The hymn, How Blessed the Righteous When He Dies, was sung, after which Dr. White read the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that sublime description of the resurrection of Christ and the believer, and then delivered an address, which was just as appropriate as it was heartfelt and affectionate. The casket, followed by a long procession of people and far from near, was borne to the cemetery and with military honors was at last committed to the grave. The spot where he rests is beautiful for situation, the gentle eminence commanding the loveliest views of peaceful, picturesque valleys beyond which, like faithful sentinels, rise the everlasting hills. My pastor took me to his own home, and, can, and never could the loving kindness and sympathy of true hearts be exceeded by that of his, himself, his family, and the good people of Lexington to me in this hour of deepest affection and bereavement. When the time came for my sad departure, for my once happy merry home, the noble people of Virginia extended me every kindness. I was provided with two escorts to convey me to my father's home in North Carolina, one of General Jackson's staff being detailed by the military authorities to, to attend me. And the Virginia Military Institute, wishing to do honor to the name of its late professor, also sent one of his colleagues upon the same mission. I mention these facts simply in token of gratitude, and realizing that these and all the tributes paid to my hero husband are but evidences of the love and veneration in which his name and memory are enshrined in the hearts of his countrymen and of the good and noble of all lands. I love that last line. I mention these facts, all of this, in token of the gratitude and, and realizing that these and all the tributes paid to my hero husband are but evidences of the love and veneration in which his name and memory are enshrined in the hearts of his countrymen and of the good and noble of all lands. These are things that people said about Confederate soldiers' monuments, whatever it was, the, the veterans, years after the war was over. Not anymore. But again, the scene. Thousands of people dedicated to seeing Jackson. Grieving. Laying up so many flowers. It covered the entire casket and, and scene. What a beautiful tribute. The anguish that she went through. The anguish that he went through. And the Christian sentimentality of all of this. You, you can't escape how the character of Jackson and the character of these people in this passage. Where in this are devils or evil people? Where in this? Where do you find that? Where do you find people who hated? You find none of that. And of course, uh, these are people that loved deeply. But this is not what you get from the modern narrative. And you would get, well, but they deserved it, as I said before. These people just weren't, they weren't that dedicated to any of this. It's not what you get in the literature of the time. It's not what you get in the literature of the, the decades after the war. But of course, that's all lies, according to the modern narrative, the righteous cause myth. It's all lies. 
But this is why we have these Essential Southern podcasts, to go through things like this, primary documents. This is a primary document. It's the eyewitness testimony of what was happening there. It's from his widow, from his wife, and what she felt and thought, and what went on around her, the details that no one else would have known. Is it, does it have a literary quality? Absolutely. But these things were impressed on her. Again, she never, she never remarried. And these are the sources that we should be reading for understanding the Southern cause of the time and what these people thought and how dedicated they were to it. Now, what can we glean from that for the Southern tradition? Well, clearly, Christianity, family, place, wants to be buried in Lexington, dedication to a cause, heroism, humility, because it's there, tenderness, grace, all of these things are there. It's all part of the tradition and something that we should celebrate. See you next time on the next episode. See you then.